stand clear of the closing doors, please. In a Brooklyn fractured into speculative storyscapes, you never know what could be lurking around the corner. Fantasy, horror, sci-fi, or the just plain weird. Join Professor Brad Overstreet, Senior Junior Lecturer Sam Spellingbaum, Professor Emeritus Calliope DeGamowitz, and Inquisitor James Earl King II as they discover the stories drifting in and out of your reality. Previously on Kaleidocast Season 1. Professor Brad Overstreet was in fierce academic competition with assistant crypto provost Don Fairweather Jenkins. Each sought to hunt down the best stories for their collections. Senior junior lecturer Sam Spellingbound helped Overstreet out, while Inquisitor James Earl King II played the field, using his expertise in finding stories to get what he wanted out of the eggheads. The balance was disturbed when Dawn discovered the source of the stories drifting into our reality. She harnessed the power to kill Sam Spellingbound, and then went after the others. So, let me get this straight. Spellingbound's dead? That's right. And Dawn Fairweather Jenkins tried to get rid of you too? Yes. And you escaped through the story and showed up on my doorstep? Exactly. Well, you know what this means, don't you? I... what? You led her right here, you moron! Fortunately, Don decided she would rather lord her power over the remaining story hunters than kill them. All seemed to return to normal, except for one thing. Where was I? Oh yeah, that's right. A strawberry daiquiri! James! Oh Christ! James, you are never going to believe No, what? no, sorry, no. But, but, but James, ow! Spellingbound came back. Oblivious to this development, Overstreet has put in a lot of effort in the last few months to rebuild his career. He's managed to replace Don as provost, but the job is not what he'd hoped. The irritatingly competent new emeritus professor Calliope Degamowitz isn't making life any easier. In the name of the weak anthropic principle, why? Why what? Oh, Calliope. <sighs> Look. May I call you Degamowitz? <sighs> Degamowitz. When I think of how long and hard I schemed against Don Fairweather Jenkins to orchestrate an elaborative administrative coup. Didn't she take a position with Lockheed Raytheon Amazon? Ah, uh, rebound! <sighs> Not that it makes any difference now. Her supporters are striking. Where did they even find steampunk pirate ships? Left over from the Francis Drake Centennial Retrospective Symposium, I imagine. 
Of course it is. Maybe just give in to their demands. They haven't had a raise since back when that pirate ship was christened with a bottle of Captain Morgan's and went a-viking across the Straits of Malacca. And you! <laughs> what the blank? Oh, they'd like that, wouldn't they? Yes. If I cave now, the entire university will think I've gone soft. No, this is a problem that calls for an act of sheer administrative will. Anything less, and it'll be nothing but compromise after compromise with the lower echelons of academia. Heaven forfend! Look, there's a lot to get done today, so if you don't mind, I'd like to draw your attention to... I think I'm just going to slip into my office and drown my sorrows in meta-theorems. I wouldn't... What was that? Something I left for you on your desk. It's shiny and dark. Well, not so much shiny as the opposite of shiny, and not so much dark as uh, the apotheosis of dark. It needs your signature by the end of the day. N.K. Jemison's playing nice with God's bowling ball. How am I supposed to get into my office? Sounds like a problem that calls for an act of sheer administrative will. Playing Nice with God's Bowling Ball by N.K. Jemison. I didn't mean for anything to happen to Timmy. Jeffy Hansen sat before Grace in a chair big enough to swallow him his head bowed and his hands limp in his lap. I told him not to feed it like that. I told him what would happen. Let's just start at the beginning. Detective Grace Anaton gave Jeffy a reassuring smile, though he didn't lift his eyes to see it. In spite of herself, Grace felt sorry for the kid. She knew better. He could be some sweet-talking little punk trying to snow-job her with his big, brown puppy eyes. Or a sociopath, already skilled enough at seven years old to emulate emotions he didn't feel. She shouldn't feel sorry for any confessed murderer, no matter how improbable the murder sounded. But she did. He took a deep breath and let it out in a sigh. It was for my mom. The card. I wanted to get it back from Timmy. You know Monster Fusion King? Grace sifted through her memory and came up with an image. A sign in the window of the local convenience store. Monster Fusion King, sold here. Some sort of card game? He nodded. Me and Timmy, we get new packs on Fridays. Timmy always gets four or five. I only buy one. My mom used to give me an allowance, but... When Dad went away and we moved here to the city, she had to stop. We don't have a lot of money anymore. So how do you get a new pack every week, Jeffy? Mom gives me lunch money, but at lunchtime I get water instead of juice, and I save up what's left, and I use that to buy my pack for the week. He looked up at Grace, 
a different sort of guilt flickering in his eyes. Do you have to tell my mom that? Grace smiled and made a mental note to check for a financial motive if the kid's confession turned out to be more than a load of hooey. I don't think we'll have to tell her that, Jeffy. So, this all started when Timmy got a card you liked? No. He looked down at his hands again. I mean, yeah, he always had cards I liked, but that wasn't what started it. Timmy was a real collector. He even got Monster King magazine. He had almost all the cards ever made. I see, and how many cards did you have? He shrugged a little. Not so many. Of course. So, uh, this started last Friday, when you got your new pack? He nodded. I got a really good card, the Kaku Chimera. It's a special contest card. Only a few ever made. Only, I didn't know that. Not then. Timmy said he'd trade me for three of his repeats. Once he already had, I mean. I said yes. He frowned and squirmed in his seat. Grace read his restlessness. I'm guessing it was worth more than three cards. Yeah. My friend Eduardo said he saw one for $300 on eBay. Holy shit, Grace thought. I gotta start collecting cards. When did you find this out, Jeffy? At school on Monday. That's when I talked to Eduardo. A lot of the kids in my class are into Monster King. I see, and you got mad. No. He looked up at her, frowning again. I didn't care about stuff like that. Timmy was my friend. But that night when I got home, my mom was crying. Why? Her car. It's really old. Broke down at work. She said she couldn't afford to get it fixed. My dad, he... Another of those little shifts of discomfort. He doesn't send money to take care of me like he's both do. He doesn't think that I'm hit. Grace's eyebrows shot up. What kind of parents would tell their child something like that? They argued a lot before he left. Sometimes I listened. I see. So your mom was upset. Yeah. She couldn't afford to get the car fixed unless she took the money out of the rent, and if she did that, we'd lose the apartment. That must have made you feel really bad. An unhappy nod. I asked her what she needed to fix the car, and she said $300. Definitely a financial motive. And definitely more than manslaughter. Grace kept her voice even. So then you wanted your card back. Yeah. I called Timmy that night and told him I knew he'd made a bad trade and it wasn't fair and we should reverse it. And he said it wasn't his fault I didn't know about the contest cards. Jeffy's brow tightened. And then I told him about my mom and he said, yeah, right, it was a good story, but he wasn't falling for it and too bad, so sad. Jeffy looked up at her. I got mad then. I can imagine. Revenge motive too, maybe. Damn, the poor little brat might be looking at murder one. So what did you do, Jeffy? I told him I'd do anything to get the card back. I offered him everything I had. All my cards and my rollerblades and even my click-and-go robot set. But he said he was going to keep the card because in a year it might be worth twice as much. He said he would only give it to me if I gave him something really, 
really cool for it. And then he laughed and said I'd never be able to give him something that cool because I was poor. So that was like asking me to give him the moon or a black hole or something. Grace shook her head. Kids could be real little monsters sometimes. Then she shoved that thought aside. She was feeling sorry for the kid again. She leaned across the table and folded her hands. Jeffy, when you came into the precinct, you told the officer at the front desk that you might have killed Timmy Johnson. Is this why you killed him? Because he wouldn't give you your card back? Jeffy frowned again. No, I told you I didn't mean to. It was an accident. But if you were angry with him... Well, I wasn't. Not once he said what he wanted. I gave it to him and I told him how to take care of it, but he didn't pay attention. Neither had Grace, apparently. She frowned in confusion, trying to figure out what she'd missed. Gave what to him, Jeffy? I already told you, Jeffy said with an exasperated air. Timmy said he would give me back the card if I gave him something like the moon or a black hole. I couldn't think of anything else, and the moon is too big, so I just made a black hole and gave it to him. Oh, well, just a little one. But he started feeding it, this giant stuffed panda he got from Coney Island last year. The panda was even bigger than he was. I tried to stop him. I told him it was too big. But he dented the special container it was in, and the black hole got loose. And it ate him. Then, apparently oblivious to Grace's stare, the boy burst into tears. I told him to be careful. In the observation room, Grace rubbed her face with her hands. Beyond the one-way glass, little Jeffy sat with his head down on his folded arms. So the kid is crazy, said Captain DeWitt. Not necessarily. Tolifer, Grace's partner, regarded the boy through the glass. Could be a cry for attention or some bullshit like that. He killed somebody, but can't say where the body is. No, wait. He only thinks he killed him. No, wait. He shook his head. Prank, maybe. Or just flat-out lie. Grace shook her head. Put a kid that age in front of a cop, and they might tell a little white lie, but not the kinds of whoppers this kid is spinning. He actually believes what he's saying. Could he be... Tolliver waved a hand. I don't know. Confused. Maybe the Johnson kid fell into a sinkhole. Uh, This kid sees what happens doesn't know the word for it, and calls it a black hole. And he feels guilty because maybe he wished something bad would happen to little Timmy because little Timmy's an asshole, and uh, he comes up with this story. DeWitt shook his head. We can get Dr. Howard to examine the kid if it comes to that. In the meantime, get his mother in here and take an official statement. If the kid did kill somebody, I don't want him getting off in a technicality. They took another statement from Jeffy once his mother arrived. Grace watched closely while Tolliver conducted the interview. Tolliver asked Jeffy the same questions in different ways, urged him to repeat certain details, made him describe the $300 card, and retrace his steps from school to home every afternoon. But despite all of that, Grace detected no inconsistencies in the boy's story. She watched the mother, too. Mrs. Hansen 
a thin woman in a faded dress who had perpetually tired eyes, listened to the story with a little frown on her face, showing surprise only once. Not when Tolliver mentioned possible harm to Timmy Johnson. That had only made her frown deepen. But when Jeffy gave his black hole explanation, her eyes widened, her breath caught, and her body language screamed anxiety in a way that no detective could have missed. DeWitt noticed it, too, and rapped on the door to bring Tolliver out. Closing the door, he turned to them and folded his arms. So? Tolliver shook his head. I can't crack the kid, but the mom sure is interesting. DeWitt sighed and nodded. And Hero was ready to call this a case of too much high-fructose corn syrup. Shouldn't we send a forensic team over to the Johnsons? Grace asked. Hard to indict anybody for murder if there's no evidence that a murder actually occurred. I don't want to send a team yet. I'm with Tally on this maybe turning out to be a prank. But you two go check it out. Holler if you see any black holes. Mr. Johnson wasn't home. Mrs. Johnson let them in. She was a pretty woman, but there was a dull sort of glaze to her eyes that Grace had seen before. Denial, probably, or shock. That desperate, creeping fear that only the parents of a missing child could ever know. It's about time, she said when Grace and Tolliver entered the house. Despite the words, her voice was without heat, without any emotion, in fact, spilling out of her in a soft, droning babble. I called in the missing persons report this morning. You want a description of what he was wearing? I've been trying to find a good photograph. Grace cleared her throat uneasily. We're not exactly here about the missing persons report, Mrs. Johnson. She glanced around the foyer of the place. A four-bedroom duplex and a nice brownstone, worth a lot these days, but probably not when they'd bought it. There was something strange about the place. She noticed at once. Something off-kilter, but she couldn't put her finger on the source of that feeling. Mrs. Johnson walked past them toward the living room. A half-burnt cigarette smoldered in an ashtray on the table. She picked it up and waved them toward the couch. Talk to me about what? Her eyes lit in sudden, hungry anxiety. You found Timmy? No, Mrs. Johnson, I'm sorry. Tolliver looked uncomfortable. Do you know a friend of Timmy's named Jeffrey Hansen? The Johnson woman seemed to wilt. Her dull glaze returned. Jeffy, sure, I know him. Weird kid, but nice enough. What's this about? Oh, why do you say he's weird, Mrs. Johnson? He just is. She made a vague gesture with the cigarette. Smoke swirled in loops around her. Quiet, polite. Her lips quirked in a faint, fleeting smile. Well, maybe I'm just used to Timmy. But I've heard weird things about his mom. She shook her head. Anyway, what does this have to do with my son? Tolliver cleared his throat. This afternoon, ma'am, Jeffy came into the precinct and asked to be arrested. He said, and I quote, he flipped through his notepad. I think I killed Timmy Johnson. It was an accident, but I think maybe I should go to jail. The Johnson woman's face went slack for an instant. Timmy's dead? Quickly, Grace spoke up. We're not certain, Mrs. Johnson. Jeffy says it happened here, in Timmy's bedroom, but 
Obviously, you would have been the first to know if that was true. And Jeffy appears to be confused about about the details of the crime. So we can't jump to any conclusions about Timmy yet. The shock began to clear from Mrs. Johnson's face. She swallowed, took a breath, noticed that her cigarette was about to drop some ashes and absently stubbed it out. When? When will you know more? Well, first we'd like to examine the crimes of the place where it supposedly happened, Grace said. May we? The woman nodded and waved them toward the stairwell. Up on the left. She fell silent then, lost in the daze of her own terrible thoughts. Grace and Tolliver glanced at each other, then made an awkward exit to go check out the scene. But when they opened the door to the Johnson boys' room, they both stopped in shock. Parts of the room were still normal. A bookcase set into one wall held all the usual accoutrements of the small boy lifestyle. Large binders labeled Monster King in a blocky hand, an open box of Legos, a row of books arranged with a mother's neatness. On a nearby wall were posters, one of the Yankees' Derek Jeter and another of some spiky-haired anime character. Below the posters was a bed, more or less in order. They could see that, at one point, it had been neatly made— But now the sheets hung half on the floor and the bed itself had been partially pulled away from the wall. It dipped at a precarious angle toward the yawning, splintered pit in the middle of the hardwood floor. What the... Tolliver murmured aloud. Grace stepped into the bedroom, moving gingerly even though the outermost edges of the floor seemed stable. The pit started a foot or two into the room. From there... The floor had been demolished in a rough circle, bits of plaster and wood sloping dangerously toward a hole maybe five inches across at the center. They could glimpse the room below, the kitchen, through the opening. Grace had a sudden vision of a whirlpool, made of wood and laughing rather than water, twisting with a hellish speed as it descended into what? A black hole, like the kid said. She pushed that thought aside. Looks like somebody's dropped God's bowling ball in here, Tolliver muttered. We thought he'd run away, said Mrs. Johnson. Grace spun around. She'd been too stunned by the hole to hear the woman coming up the steps behind them. That's why we waited till today to file the report, Mrs. Johnson said in her heatless, spiritless voice. We thought he'd gotten into something, fireworks maybe, and run away because he thought we were angry. But I don't care about the floor. She rubbed her eyes. Grace's heart ached for her. If you find him, tell him that. The floor doesn't matter, I just want him home. Grace pointed at the floor. Mrs. Johnson, do you have any idea what could have caused that? The woman looked up, her eyes haunted and very, very lost. No, said Mrs. Johnson. But there's one in the kitchen, too. They searched the basement as carefully as they could in the area under the kitchen hole. But there was nothing. No blood, no fireworks residue that they could see, no signs of a struggle. The basement had been set up as Mr. Johnson's den, with an old couch and TV and ugly carpeting. The couch was out of position, just as the Johnson kid's bed had been, and the TV stand lay on its side, the TV a shattered wreck beside it. Aside from that, the room was clean. There was no sign of whatever had punched its way down through the two floors. And there's something else weird, Grace said. 
Tolliver, who stood under the kitchen hole, peering up at it, glanced around at her. What? She gestured at the couch and the floor. Where's the debris? There should be a pile of laughing down here, but there's nothing, not even dust. Tolliver frowned and gave the room a second look. No nest lining either. Huh? This is a guy's private hangout zone. There should be chip bags, sports magazines, beer cans and stuff. Maybe he's the wine spritzer type. There's no remote for the TV. You think he's a Luddite too? It was all weird, Grace agreed privately. All part of the off-kilter feel of the place. Now that she'd seen the damage, Grace suspected most of the floors in the brownstone sloped a little. That's what she had noticed before, at least subconsciously. Perspectives gone skewy, her balance slightly disrupted. If a forensics team measured the place, they would probably find all the furniture just a teensy bit out of position, and all the walls minutely warped, all pulled toward whatever had started eating its way through the Johnson's house. Whoa, hold up. Tolliver, peering into a corner beside the couch, straightened with something in his hand. Grace came over. It was a child's toy, or partly one. The outermost portion of the object was made of Legos, built into a box-like frame. The inner portion was a mass of what looked like quartz, bits of it charred, threaded through with strands of colored spaghetti, fiber optic wire, or something else. Whatever it was, it seemed to be growing out of the crystals. Busted, whatever it is, Tolliver said. He poked the burnt portions with the tip of a pencil. Bag it, Grace said. Maybe the lab boys can figure it out. The lab boys sent back a report a few days later. No blood traces, no fireworks residue, and the crystalline portion was simple rock sugar. The spaghetti strands were some sort of polymer. They were still trying to identify it, but it would have to wait as three higher-priority cases had come in. Across the bottom of the report, some wit had scrawled, chalk this one up for the X-Files, and a happy face. Without a body or evidence that a murder had even occurred, they couldn't charge the Hanson kid. The holes in the Johnson's floor could have been caused by anything, and although they had the kid's confession, the assistant DA laughed at the notion of filing an indictment with the evidence they had. So Captain DeWitt ordered Grace and Tolliver off the case. But the case lingered in Grace's thoughts for the whole week afterward. She lay awake in bed, contemplating little Jeffy Hansen's unhappy face and the yawning pit where Timmy Johnson had last been seen. Finally, she decided to follow one last lead. She got up early one morning and went over to the Hansons. Mrs. Hansen met her at the door, looking more tired than ever. She didn't seem surprised to see Grace. I'm keeping Jeffy home from school today, she said. He hasn't been sleeping well lately. Do you have to talk to him again? I'd like to start putting this behind us. A child is still missing, Mrs. Hansen, Grace said. The woman sighed and held the door open. 
Jeffy stepped into the hallway as Grace came inside. You didn't believe me, he said. He was scowling. I don't want to talk to you. He stomped out of sight. Mrs. Hansen sighed again and closed the door behind Grace. Come have a cup of coffee at least. They sat in the claustrophobic kitchen, at a table whose center was piled high with bills. The one on top bore a past-due notice. Mrs. Hansen caught Grace looking and offered a thin smile. Haven't quite mastered the financials of the single mother thing yet. Grace sipped coffee. Jeffy's father doesn't help out much? Try it all. You can file a claim with the state, you know. They'd track him down for you. Hansen shook her head, running one hand over her graying hair. No, I don't need his money. Grace tried to use a delicate tone. Jeffy might. I know, but I can't afford a lawyer right now. All you need is proof of paternity. Abruptly, that peculiar, anxious tension was there again in the woman's body language. Grace watched closely as Hansen looked into her cup of coffee, fidgeted with the handle, shifted on her chair. I don't want Jeffy taking any blood tests. Besides, it's not that important. If Jeffy killed someone because he wanted to get money for you, it's important, Mrs. Hansen. She winced. He said he didn't mean for anyone to get hurt. It sounds like you believe him. His whole story, I mean. Now the woman's face tightened in an awed expression, half proud, half rueful. Oh, yes. Jeffy never lies. Tension gathered in the pit of Grace's belly. There have been other incidents like this? No one's gone missing or been hurt before, if that's what you mean. It wasn't, and the woman damn well knew it. Grace leaned forward. Mrs. Hansen, if you know anything about Timmy Johnson and you don't tell us, you'll be an accomplice in whatever's happened to him. The woman shook her head. Curiously, she seemed to relax a bit as well. I don't know anything about that, really. I'll admit I didn't like the boy much. This wasn't the first time he'd taken advantage of Jeffy, though Jeffy's the forgiving sort. But I certainly wouldn't have wished harm on him. You believe the Johnson boy's dead, then? Mrs. Hansen smiled, knowingly, and utterly without humor. I asked Jeffy about that last night. You know what he said? What? Things are different in there, Mom. She imitated Jeffy Hansen's solemn soprano perfectly. He said, Timmy still existed, sort of. That's what he said, sort of. So I looked up black holes on the internet to try and understand. You see, the flow of time around Timmy, close to the black hole, is bent. It, it's a matter of perception. To us, outside the hole, he vanished quickly, but will slow down as he gets closer to the hole. Eventually, if we could see at the microscopic level, he'd look to us as if he was frozen in place. But for Timmy, time is stretched out. Only an eye blink has passed since he started to fall in. He probably doesn't even know he's in trouble yet. It might take him years, by our reckoning, to fall in all the way. Or he might already be gone. It really depends on which theory you pick. She sipped her coffee, then swirled the remainder around in her cup, 
The dark liquid swirled about the center in a miniature whirlpool. Grace took a swallow of coffee as well, mostly to offset the chill that moved down her spine. What are you saying? That Timmy's not dead? I'm saying Timmy Johnson may very well live forever. Mrs. Hansen gave Grace another of those strange, bleak smiles. You still want to arrest my son for murder? Crazy son, crazy mother, Tolliver said later that day when Grace told him about the impromptu interview. You didn't believe her, did you? It's not the first time she's pulled this loon job. What? Check this out. Tolliver woke up his computer and googled the name of Jeffy Hansen's mother. The top of the list of her responses was a site for the Aquarian Association of Abductees. Grace groaned. Is that what I think it is? Yep. Our black hole boy is, according to his mother's testimony on this site, the demi-human result of a transcendental visitation by otherworldly beings. If this is what the kid's father had to put up with, no wonder he booked. No doubt, but... The Hansen woman hadn't seemed crazy, Grace recalled. Far from it. Neither had little Jeffy. Any chance she might be telling the truth? Tolliver stared at her. She felt her cheeks grow warm. That Jeffy isn't her ex-husband's kid, I mean. You know, maybe his mom had an affair with Stephen Hawking and uh, came up with this to explain it. Hell of a way to tell the kid he's an accident. He sat back in his chair. We could always call Child Protective Services. Grace shook her head. I don't think there's any abuse or neglect here. This sounds like just another of those gentle lies parents tell their kids. Fido ran away instead of Fido got creamed by an 18-wheeler. Either way, now we know who's been putting idea in the kid's head. Just as well we gave up on this one. He leveled a look at her. You should let it go, too. He was right, of course though it troubled Grace deeply that the Johnson boy was still missing. He was just another of the ugly little loose ends that never seemed to get tied up in her job. She'd done the best she could. It was time to move on. And yet... Another week passed. Timmy Johnson was put on the state and national lists of missing and exploited children. His father went on the evening news, weeping and begging his son to come home. Several dozen Timmy sightings poured into the division after that, then trickled off in 24 hours, all of them were false alarms. Grace wrote one last report for the file. The most likely theory of the crime was that Timmy Johnson had used some sort of explosive to severely damage his parents' home. Then he ran away rather than face the music. There were 10,000 predators on the street who would target a scared, vulnerable little boy. The confession by Timmy's friend Jeffy was assumed to be a lonely, unhappy child's bid for attention, fueled by his lonely, unhappy mother's long-term quest for the same. She put the file on her captain's desk, then got out a phone book and started to make some calls. That afternoon, Grace took off work early. She made one stop along the way, then drove to PS 1138 around 3 p.m., she waited while children filled the courtyard and began trickling away on foot and in buses and carpools. After a half hour, she caught a glimpse of a familiar dark head of hair. 
Jeffy Hansen walked away from the school alone, his head down, book bag sagging and hands in his pockets. Grace got out of the car and trotted over to join him. He spotted her coming and stopped. I still don't want to talk to you. Just one last thing, Jeffy. Can I walk with you at least? Uh, won't waste your time that way. He heaved a sigh. Okay. He resumed walking, still at the same slow pace. You usually walk home alone, Jeffy? No. I used to walk with Timmy. There was deep sorrow in the boy's voice. That, more than anything, reassured Grace that she'd made the right decision. Tell me something, Jeffy. What happened to the black hole? He paused for just a step, though he resumed walking quickly. You didn't believe me before. Well, can you really blame me for that? Nobody's ever made a black hole before. But I did some reading on it after I met you. She slipped her hands into her pockets, looking up at the bright autumn sky. The black hole started to fall into the earth, didn't it? After it ate Timmy? It would have gone to the center of the planet and kept growing there. It might have eventually eaten us all, but you stopped it. He said nothing for several seconds, and then finally, Yeah, it went kind of slow at first, so I ran down to the basement and built something to stop it. Then I built something else to hold it, and I took it away. Grace felt her heart speed up. She swallowed. Never mind the sensible, skeptical questions. Never mind how he'd stopped it, or how he'd contained it, or how he'd created the damn thing in the first place. Those weren't the important questions right now. Where, Jeffy? Where did you take it? I haven't figured out where I can put it that's safe. He slipped his backpack off one shoulder, reached inside, and pulled out a lidded coffee can. Or, at least, part of the strange object was a coffee can. The rest was a bizarre conglomeration of crystalline masses, colored spaghetti, assorted oddities. She glimpsed a silver chewing gum wrapper twisted into an odd shape inside one of the crystals, and components from what had to be Mr. Johnson's TV remote. A mute button poked out of the object's side. I'm scared to leave it at home, he said very softly. Sometimes my mom cleans my room. Grace stared at the can, aware that if she once looked inside it, the universe would change. Not in the ways that mattered. Murders wouldn't stop, bad things would still happen to good people, and kids whose only crime was selfishness would still suffer fates they didn't deserve. But her place in the universe, her conceptualization of it, would be altered beyond all recognition, and perhaps destroyed. For how important could her job, her life, her very existence be in a world where seven-year-olds carried black holes around in their school bags? Then the moment passed, and she lifted her eyes from the coffee can to look at the solemn face of the boy behind it. A boy whose eyes were ringed in dark circles because he hadn't slept well in weeks. A boy who held the earth's death in his hands, too afraid to let go. You can't destroy it, she asked. No, not yet. Maybe when I'm older, I'll understand that better. Maybe I'll be able to get Timmy out, too. She made herself reach out and take hold of the can. 
The crystals felt slightly warm under her fingertips. Then I'd better hold on to this for a while, she said. In the interest of public safety, at least until you're old enough to get rid of it. But you have to promise not to make any more, agreed? Jeffy brightened at once, the burden of responsibility lifting from him almost palpably. Really? Okay. Then his small face clouded. But you have to promise not to play with it, not even a little. You're a police woman. You have to do what's right. Not even a little, Grace agreed. In fact, I won't even open it. Then she reached into her blazer pocket and pulled out a small paper bag, which she handed to him. He frowned, opened it, and took out the Monster Fusion King card. His mouth formed a big, silent O. That's the one, right? It sure is, but... He frowned in confusion. It can't be the same one. Timmy had taken that one with him. It's not, but the original deal was the card for this, so I figured the price was the same. She lifted the coffee can. Fair is fair. He grinned up at her in delight. Grace couldn't help grinning back. One day, when Jeffy grew up and came into the full power and genius that was his true father's gift, she hoped he would remember this day. Maybe one small act of kindness would stay with him, despite the abandonment and loneliness and cruelty he'd experienced in his life. Maybe his destiny could be shaped by the small joys of human life, a mother's love, the games of childhood, the satisfaction of making someone else's life a little easier. Maybe then little Jeffy would grow up to build miracles instead of nightmares. Now, Grace put a hand on his shoulder. I hear the comic book shop around the corner buys rare cards. They're expecting you. Okay, he tucked the precious card into his backpack. And I'll come find you when I know how to get rid of it, I promise. All right. He waved and ran off. Grace watched him go, then headed back to her car, where she tucked the coffee can into the storage net in her trunk. That would do until she could take it up to Poughkeepsie and stow it in her mother's attic. It would be all right there for a decade or two. She drove very, very carefully on the way home. In 2016, N.K. Jemison became the first black person to win the Best Novel Hugo for her novel, The Fifth Season. Her work has been nominated for the Hugo, Nebula, and World Fantasy Awards, shortlisted for the Crawford, Jamel Morningstar, and Tiptree Awards, and she won a Locus Award for Best First Novel. Her short fiction is published in Clark's World, Postscripts, Strange Horizons, Ben's Universe, Idiomancer, and Abyss and Apex, on the podcast Escape Artists, and several anthologies. She is a member of the Altered Fluid Writing Group. Nora has been a counseling psychologist, educator, hiker, biker, and a political feminist, anti-racist blogger. She writes the New York Times SFF book review column, Otherworldly. You can find her at N.K. Jemison and also on Facebook. Tatiana Gray is a critically acclaimed actress of stage, screen, and the audio booth. She has been nominated for dozens of fancy awards, but hasn't won a single damn thing. She does, however 
have a feature film hitting the festival circuit called Serious Laundry. She lives in Brooklyn, New York. See more about Tatiana at www.tatianagray.com. This episode of Kaleidocast Season 2 is brought to you by our Kickstarter supporters, Matthew Kressel, Jennifer Reinhardt, and Chandler Klang-Smith. No, no, I said Afro-Funk, not Cyberpunk. They're not even close. Hey, to be continued, getting on the train. Attention passengers, due to the unseasonably low AFI index, angry puppy trolls are proliferating around the third rail. Our departure from the station has been delayed. Expect stuffed ballots and snowflakes. We apologize for the inconvenience. We will be going over the local track. Again, we apologize. It's showtime, showtime, everybody. James, James Earl King II, my friend. It's me, Sam Spellingbaum. You again? Oh, sweet tummy gods, are you? Are you dancing? Why, yes. In my genreverse, vital information is set to rhymes with a dankness quotient inversely proportional to get away from me. Freaking lunatic. Two months of this crap. You'd think he'd take the hint. Taxi! Hey boss, take me to the Metatechnic Institute. Sure thing, fellow citizen. Alexa, Siri, Cortana? Set a course for Atlantis and Buffalo. Spelling, how did he... You know what? That works for me. Okay, Jay, good sir. That will be five RMB. Spelling bound, I know it's you. Oh, wait, James. Uh, if you just come with me, I can show you how... The world is in danger from a hole in the multiverse. Yes. From which flows metafictional energies that are unbalancing space-time and genre boundaries as we know them? Yes. Yeah, I read the notes you carved on my door. And you need me to help you stop this from happening because in your ultra of Brooklyn, we're besties? Yes. Do they have tasers in your Brooklyn spelling bound? <laughs> yes, but uh, we call them zaplins. Uh, oh, what's that you got there? Best... <laughs> All right, taking you to Overstreet. He can deal with you. <clears throat> Damn, you're a big guy. Should have tased you after I got to his office. Thank you for listening to The Kaleidocast, a production of the Brooklyn Speculative Fiction Writers, who can be found at bsfwriters.com. Your hosts are Marcy Arlen as Clyde P. DeGamowitz, Bradley Robert Parks as Brad Overstreet, Cameron Roberson as James Earl King II, and Sam Schreiber as Sam Spellingbound. Your editors and producers are Marcy Arlen, who's also our director, Bradley Robert Parks, Jessica Plumley, who provides additional vocals, 
Cameron Roberson, managing editor, and Sam Schreiber, our story runner. Our music is Delusion of the Fury, Act 2, Treats with Life and with Life Despite Life, Arrest, Trial, and Judgment, Joy in the Marketplace, by Harry Parch, used by permission of Innova Recordings and the Harry Parch Foundation. Our intro was produced by sound engineer Matt Mozzarella. This podcast uses many sound effects from YouTube, freesound.org, and from FreeSFX at freesfx.co.uk. See our website for a full list of sounds from each episode. Special thanks go out to Marcus Song, Daniel Stalter, Margot Atwell at Kickstarter, C.S.E. Cooney, Carlos Hernandez, Fran Wilde, and Cat Valente. The Kaleidocast and all its contents are protected by a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License, which means you can share it all you want, but don't sell it or change it, and give credit to the Kaleidocast and its authors. If you like what you hear, please leave a review on iTunes, or go to our website at kaleidocast.nyc to comment on what you've heard here and to find links to all our contributors.